This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. On Becoming Educated today, I have John Tate. John is a Director of School Improvement and Deputy CEO at Arete Learning Trust in North Yorkshire. John started teaching in 2001 as a qualified PE teacher and more recently has taught computer science. John has been a senior leader for 13 of his 19 years in teaching. At school, John was a free school meal student and was what we now class as disadvantaged and went to university on a full grant. Outside of education, John carried the Olympic torch in 2012, has coached American football for Great Britain and has played in the FA Cup. John is the author of four books, 100 Ideas for Engaging Learners, Bloomsbury CPD Library's Senior Leadership, Succeeding as a Head of Year, and his latest publication, Teaching Rebooted. John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Pleasure to be here, Dan. I would, just before we start start off into your career, I'd like to you tell me a little bit about your journey into the FA Cup. Could you, could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, it was interesting. I'd finished university. I'd played at a pretty decent level at kind of university um, and joined a team um, called Crooktown, just outside of kind of Durham. And um, yeah, we, we, we kind of, I played in the one of the first qualifying rounds of the FA Cup, uh, kept a clean sheet. I'm a goalkeeper. And um, so, yeah, just a, a real kind of one of those things where, you know, that it never, ever goes away. You know, the fact that you can say, oh, I played in the FA Cup. And what's interesting is that I was kind of just last night, I was thinking, oh, I, I better check the year it was just in case in case you asked me the year it was. And I looked and I was then quite astounded because I'm a, I'm a Manchester United fan. It was 1999. So it was the right. it was the so I played in that competition that ultimately led to United winning the treble that year. So it's it's kind of, yeah, it, it was great. Um, and then we went on, actually, we. We went through three or four of the qualifying rounds uh, and we eventually got to play Doncaster Rovers away. And I was on the bench for that game. And um, you know, about 2,500 people in there. They had Mike Newell up front. And any listeners who kind of, uh, my kind of age or our age, Darren, will remember Mike Newell from winning the Premier League at Blackburn Rovers, uh-huh. kind of partnering Shearer and Sutton up front. And I was thinking, this isn't fair. Like, you know, he was getting towards the end of his career. But he was just holding the ball up and you know, you know, laying them off, and it was like one nil, two nil, three nil. We ended up getting tanked seven nil. Um, but it was an amazing kind of experience, um, just kind of being part of that competition. You know, the greatest kind of football and cup competition in the world, probably to to, to say that you know from wherever and whenever. Oh well, yeah, I played in the FA Cup once. Um, so yeah, it was great, and uh, feels like a long time ago now, but um, you know, a great experience. No, it certainly does, and keeping a clean sheet is something that you can hang your hat on for 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 the, for the rest of your, rest of your days. So just to just to go on to with the with the interview, we're going to talk about your your latest book, Teaching Rebooted. But before we do that, could you give us a little potted history of of your career to date, please? Yeah, I started. I didn't kind of start in uh, in teaching. Uh, when I came out of university, I was I was coaching football. Actually, it was interesting. I. I, I heard your interview with with Phil Nelly the other week, and you were you were both chatting about how you were how you kind of found um, you know resemblance in your early, early careers, and I think mine was very very similar. I did some coaching at Troy Alexandria when I was at university, um, and then went out to America a couple of times and, and coached out in America, and was trying to really make my way as a football coach, and realised that really the opportunities to work full time in football were very few and far between, unless you had been an ex-professional, you'd, you'd had a name in the game or you know something like that. <clears throat> so um, I decided to get into PE teaching because 
football coaching and PE teaching, well, you know, it was a, it's a similar kind of you know thread, and actually, um, you know, far more job security and and, and all all the rest of it. So I did the uh, the graduate teacher program, which I suppose some people might might remember the GTP. Um, it's a, I suppose what's badged up now as school direct. Uh, as, as we would know, um, certainly in England, I don't know whether it's the same up in Scotland, but but that that's kind of how that how that worked. Um, so I did two years. I did my GTP year and my NQT year in a school in Darlington uh, called Eastbourne School, and um, it was <laughs> it was like Grand Chill for anyone that remembers Grand Chill. There was windows getting put out left, right, and centre. There was kind of kids trapping, uh, you know, teachers' hands in doors, and you know it was just horrendous. Um, but nice horrendous if, if anyone kind of gets that it was I, I really enjoyed it and I think sometimes you, you know, if you've got something about you and you've got a bit of resilience then actually you enjoy some of those more challenging circumstances and environments and um, it really let me cut my teeth as a teacher and I think there's no surprise that I went on to then become in my in my next school I went to be ahead of year and my first senior leadership job was in charge of behavior and child protection and so I think it, it gave me a great grounding and I would have been I think I would have been um worried if I'd gone the other way and started in a really really nice school with with no behavior problems and then suddenly being just dropped into somewhere like that so um, I did that for two years moved on as an NQT plus one to a school called Woodham Academy in Newton Aycliffe did 11 years there seven of those were as a senior leader um, moved up through assistant head of year to head of year and I always remember a lady called Kath Sewell brought me in the office once one of my assistant head teachers and said John have you uh, have you seen the the advert for uh, assistant head of year and uh, I remember saying to her distinctly, <clears throat> why would I want to pick up everyone else's crap all day long? And she just kind of laughed at me and said, oh, no, I think you'd be really good at it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm denied. And, you know, I'd gone into teaching to teach PE. That was, I didn't go into teaching to be a head of year or to do child protection or anything like that. Or I didn't want to be a head teacher. It was, I wanted to teach PE. So I went away, thought about it. And then that's kind of what I did for the next <laughs> 10 years of my career in terms of running, you know, mid, either middle or senior leadership through pastoral. Uh, and I think that that pastoral element of, of my grounding as a leader gave me a fantastic insight to the um, the wider kind of whole school remit of a senior leader because I think sometimes, no disrespect to people who go through the subject leadership route, but I think sometimes you can you see your subject and you look after your subject, and quite rightly, you know you you look after what, what what's in your kind of area of the of the school, but as a pastoral leader, I think quicker uh, you see a lot more of the of the bigger picture of the school and, and and how it how everything impacts you know behavior attendance child protection you know uh, issues in the classroom so it was great for me and then i um uh, after i'd been there as an assistant ed teacher for i was an assistant ed teacher for probably the last kind of seven years of that um i moved on to uh, my previous school uh Acklam grange school in middlesbrough as deputy head teacher I was there for six and a half years went there as a requires improvement school was given carte blanche and free reign really to uh, look at teaching and learning and professional development um, and uh, you know really really made massive strides there a fantastic journey really grew as a leader and really really honed my skills as a leader and found my identity as a leader as a deputy head um, started writing at the same time uh, or writing my books anyway, I'd written previously and blogging before that um, we, we had a fantastic time got to kind of top five percent in the country in terms of progress and all this different type of stuff so great stuff and then I've just moved on in the last uh, couple of months, really, to my new job as as, as dep- deputy CEO and director of school improvement. Got the job within lockdown, so left my previous school and joined my new organisation within lockdown. So I had an interview over uh, over kind of uh, Google Meet for the for the job. So it's been a very very strange 
end to my old role as, as deputy head teacher for six and a half years and a very strange start to my new role. Um, very interesting, loving it already, but um, I haven't seen the kids in school yet because, because they're, they're not back. So yeah, it's been a, that's a little bit of, of kind of you know, where I've come from and how I've got to where I've gotten and what's happened in the last few months. No, definitely. And, and I think, uh, I think uh, what you said there about the roots from going through the parcel route and you, also your school improvement into professional learning, you've you've got a lot of things to go and you can perhaps see the complete kind of kind of journey of a child, not just the, the subject. So I, I do I do agree with some of the, the th- things you said there, and I, and I think your your early start in your career is very similar to mine because as I said, fully, I was a football coach up at. Aberdeen Football Club and we don't have any of the school direct programs I did a postgraduate diploma in education because my undergraduate degree was a sports science degree and then I went into football coaching and had the same kind of kind of things as not being an ex-player and so on you did feel a little bit a little bit difference in, in PE teaching is where I am and it was only eight years ago I started so I'm, st- I'm still there PE teaching <laughs> and, and thor- thoroughly thoroughly enjoying it. So you spoke a little bit there about about you going to Acklam Grange and, and finding your voice as a writer and starting writing. And I said in the introduction you've written a couple of books, but we're going to focus today on on your latest book, which is out and is it out this week? I think. If we yeah, it's, it's the Thursday the twentieth. So uh, you know GCSE day here in um, in England, which <laughs> we've just been talking this off air, haven't we, Darren? We have no idea what's going to happen. Um, so whenever, depending on when people are listening to this. We're, we're, we're recording this in the middle of the A-level results coming out in England and the GCSE results about to come out in England and uh, on the back of what's happened in Scotland a few weeks earlier, we both have no idea what's going to happen. So, uh, yeah, it's out August, August the 20th. So it could be, could be, I think we're recording this on on, in the, on Sunday morning, the, the 15th of August, just to, just to, to stamp, the, stamp the date there. But um, So... Teaching your book will be out on on the same day, so hopefully, hopefully it doesn't go unnoticed because I think it, it it deserves to not go unnoticed on on GCSE results day. Could you can I share with the listeners then? Why did you decide to write Teaching Rebooted? I think it, it came from a, um, a frustration, really, a professional frustration for myself that I I'd been learning over the last two or three years lots and lots about what I call the science of learning. Um, so you know things that I've written in the book: retrieval practice, spacing into leaving. Um, questioning assessment, feedback, learning versus performance, cognitive load, dual code and metacognition, all those type of things. And I was learning about them and I was learning about them in kind of embarrassment really, I suppose. And I was thinking, wow, like, why didn't I know this? And maybe, I, it was almost like an imposter syndrome of maybe because I didn't do a proper four-year, you know, normal degree course to, you know, as, as a teacher, you know, and I did my degree and I converted it via the, the graduate teacher program. Maybe that's why I missed out on all this. And I was kind of learning it, like I say, a little bit of embarrassment and not wanting to talk to too many people about, wow, have you seen this? Because I thought, well, I'm going to be suddenly found out that everyone goes, yeah, of course I knew that, John. Like, how come you didn't know that? And, I, and gradually, as I started testing the walk with people, people were like, oh, wow, I didn't know that either. And they were quite shocked. You know that, that they hadn't learned to either and, and the more I started talking to people and had confidence I suppose to kind of you know lower my kind of uh, my kind of veil to say I didn't know this either it was apparent that nobody knew it um, and that's what really frustrated me that why when this research a lot of it you know even going back to Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve from 1885 you know why on earth has this not been a, a real foundation of, of, of our teacher training um, and the more I dug into the research the more I found that there were, you know, there were researchers from the 50s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And I'm thinking, hang on a second, that this might have been quite useful for me 
when I started teaching. I could have saved lots of time. I could have been more efficient. I could have been more effective. I could have uh, helped impact on more kids' lives. And actually, it might have also been quite interesting for the teachers who taught me to have known this when I was in school because there's been lots of wasted time and, 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 and poor techniques used um, so it was a, it was born out of frustration, and but then what I really wanted to do was to make sure that the way I wrote the book, and hopefully this comes across when people read it, is that it was uh, as accessible to anybody from an, uh, a trainee teacher upwards to a head teacher, uh, because I'm sick of you know having to pour through a hundred pages of reports or try and decipher the academic language of a professor or, you know, or have to pay for something or not know where to find it. And that. So I just thought I wanted to cut through all of that and make it really simple, really easy. I didn't want to write it to try and um, demonstrate my educational IQ or price. It wasn't about kind of wanting to be clear. It was about let's just make this really simple, really succinct, and let's give you all the tools that you need and almost write the book that I would have wanted to have read when I first started teaching. Uh, and if you want to find out more about it and you get really engaged and you want to read the full report, crack on, go for it. I'll give you the link, you can go for it. But this is the book that is almost the, the entry into that world of what's been almost the secret garden, unfortunately, you know, for us as teachers. So uh, yeah, that's kind of, I suppose, why I wrote it, out of frustration really. And uh, hopefully it, you know, it, 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 does what it, uh, it does what it should do when, you know, when, when people read it. Certainly, and we're going to talk a little bit later about the, the layout of the book, and we spoke off air about kind of the, how easy it is to, to dip in and out because of, of what you've put, put in there. But you've spoke a little bit there about just not knowing, and, and I've recently been through the same kind of thinking as what, what you perhaps did a couple of years ago in terms of I'm learning this and why didn't I know this stuff already. So what do you think has then been missing from, from our professional learning and teaching? I think it's been a... Um an understanding of what actually works, not maybe what we think works. Um, and this idea that, you know, that, that there are lots of studies and research that have been conducted, robust studies all across the world that actually tell us what works better than something else. Um, and I don't think we've had enough engagement with, with research because of, you know, and, and for, for probably fair reasons, you know, because it's been inaccessible, because it's been too long, because it's because we've not known where to find it because it's been written by academics and professors rather than teachers you know all these reasons i understand why we haven't it's not just been a it hasn't been a refusal it hasn't been a you know an arrogance that, that we know better than anybody else it, it's just been the fact that there's all all of these things have built up in this jigsaw <clears throat> that we found ourselves where we haven't engaged with it as much as we should have um, um i think that we have there's also unfortunately and i've been you know guilty of this you know as much as anyone else there's been probably a a move over the last certainly not in the last few years i think we're moving away from it but round about kind of you know from the uh, the, the 2000s upwards there's certainly been a move to like edutainment and certainly engaging and entertaining students more than actually just getting down to you know what sometimes it is hard and you do have to listen and you do have to be in silence and that's sometimes the best conditions for learning um and i think we've we've, we've maybe gone a bit too far with that and i think getting back to really you know what actually works uh, you know with students and, and, and an actually a proper academic rigorous approach to teaching uh, you know we've heard all these things before about you know i remember you know people being timed of how long they spoke in a lesson and if you spoke for so long you know all this kind of stuff and we're, you're, you're laughing and shaking your head now and but what's interesting is that a few years ago not so long ago we were all nodding at that we were all because that's what was 
that's what was well thought about in the profession. You know, that was that that was where it was, and that was coming from right from the top all the way through. And you know, it, it, we 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 gave too much in terms of wanting to. Uh, give it over to the students and engage them and make them happy and make them interested. And, and I think that, you know, that they, we, we've come around a little bit now to that understanding that, you know, sometimes um, you know, it, it is tough and, 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 and learning to, to learn properly, it, you have to have those desirable difficulties. As I've mentioned in the book, it, it is hard, you know, and if it's, if it's not, then you're not going to be learning. So yeah, I think there's been a, that we, 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 we're getting around to it now, but I think it's taken a little bit longer than it should have. Certainly. And, and early on in the book, you talk, you talk about, um, Comparing teaching with the medical profession. So, why why do you think we need a more medical approach to teaching? I, I think I, I came up with this analogy um, a while ago. I was, I was speaking at a conference, and I, and it was I'd heard something somewhere. I can't remember where I heard it now. It just struck a chord with me that somebody had, had said um, you wouldn't want to take your own kids to a doctor, and then you know, and your kids were sick and they were ill, um, and the doctor just sit in front of you and go hmm. Um, I've seen. I saw this on Twitter last night, so I'm going to use this medicine on you, and I have not used it before, and I don't know if it's going to work, but I've, I think it's going to be all right. I think you'd be, you would all be horrified that 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 happened. Um, you know that they, they that they would use potentially some medicine with you to try it out on you that had not been really trialed and tested across the world, you know, before and, and recommended by the X, Y, and Z. Uh, yet, unfortunately, that's what happens in our classrooms every day. And, and I, I completely get before kind of listeners kind of jumping off their seat. I completely get that there is context in education, and you can probably treat a broken leg the same way in Middlesbrough as you can in Middlesex or Aberdeen or whatever. I, I get that, but kids are different, and, and all, all circumstances are different. But I think that the reason why I think we need a more medical-like approach and more understanding of research is that the research should therefore be an addition to our knowledge our context our gut feeling etc etc and, and it comes into the mix where we can think about and make the right decision uh, it shouldn't just completely control our decisions and be robots because we know and i've mentioned in the book that you know you there is context is king and just because it works somewhere doesn't mean to say it's going to work everywhere you know and we all have known that that you can't just take something off the shelf and plug it in and expect it to work there are lots of different reasons why things work in certain schools uh different um conditions environments you know that, that make something work um and if you haven't got all those things going on then it's not going to work either at all or as well so i get all that but i think it's about the fact that we should be understanding what the research says so it adds another context into our thinking and we can use that so at least we can then dismiss it or, or go with it rather than not even have any understanding of it and be naive to it um and like i say i think if you when you put it into a medical context and think if you went to the doctors yourself or with your kids, I think you'd be quite shocked if there was absolutely zero uh, foundational kind of research or, you know, understanding that, that underpinned the medicine that was going to be tried on you. I think you'd be you'd, you'd be mortified. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think we, we need to have a better understanding of what's happening so we can make better decisions. Whether we follow research or not uh, is, I suppose, up to you in your context and your professional judgment. But at least you've taken it into account to make the, you know, the, the best decision possible. I think that's wonderful, wonderfully well articulated that idea that even though you don't want to use it as long as you understand it and you, and you, and you've engaged with it and you realize well this is what we're saying similar to like a doctor prescribing medicine this is what works worldwide and has been proven by research studies and academics and and so on but you kind of said about when you were writing the book that you wanted to make 
he wanted to write something that was accessible. And before we, we dig into the book, which which we will do for the, for the rest of the interview, can you talk about like engaging with research? Because it, it can be daunting from teachers, and teachers that I've spoken to will come up with, with various reasons of why, why they don't engage with research. So what do we need to consider when engaged with, with it to make sure that we get the most out of it? I think if I, if I home in on two different, I mean, there's lots of different reasons, but if I home in on two areas so people can have a quick kind of takeaway, kind of if they're, you know, driving or in the gym, listening to this or wherever they kind of listen to, to your podcast. I think the first one is context. And there are, I've learned over the last few years, you've, you've got kind of validity. You've got internal and external validity. And that internal validity means, well, if I look at a bit of research, does it do what it says on the tin? So is it actually valid? So has somebody increased or has a group of students increased their performance by plus eight months plus five months because of this study individually you know does it actually is it is what's been reported true is it work and could i use it that's the first thing and, and you need to look past the headlines because unfortunately there are miscommunications and misrepresentations of, of, of studies and i think one of the interesting ones that we've seen over the last just very very recently in the last few months is that the government here in England are going to be putting a lot of money into um, uh, tutoring uh, for kind of catch-up money after you know post-COVID, um, and that tutoring you know, because kids have lost five, five months of education, we're going to be putting a lot of money into tutoring. Now, un- what's very coincidental, and I'm kind of sceptical on this, is that, is, is that you know private tu- tutoring is plus five months on the kind of EF toolkit. And it almost looks like, you know, well, hang on, what can we get that's it's going to give kids this five months extra? Oh, there we are. There's, there's, there's plus five. But when you, if you only look at the um, the headline, then you think that's going to work. What you don't realize until you start to dig into the research is that the research that was conducted on those studies is half an hour every day of mentoring and tutoring, you know, not like an hour a week, you know. And actually, we all know that half an hour a day is massively different to just one session on a Friday afternoon you know of, of an hour or so so i think that it's understanding what that what what actually it says what it does does it do what it says in the tin and do i actually understand what it says behind the headline um because you know we can all read headlines and you know, we do it all the time we read headlines and we make inferences on things that we think it says in the headline but actually you know, when you start to read it it's very very different so that's the first thing the the internal uh, validity but secondly the external validity is, is 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 going back to context how well does that travel so yes it's you know the Shanghai you know method for this 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 and this works, but actually we all know there's a very different culture in Shanghai or in Finland or in wherever, and just because it works somewhere doesn't mean to say it's going to work everywhere. So it's that idea that how well will it travel and how well can I actually pick it up and use it in my school, and doing enough reading to understand what were the conditions around the edge, like I said a few minutes ago, that make this work. So context is everything, you know, and and like Dylan Williams said everything works somewhere. But not everything works everywhere, you know. That, that, that actually, it's you, you've got to understand that it's it's there aren't any silver bullets. You can't just plug it in and expect it's going to work. That you have to, you know, this idea of um, you know making sure that uh, you know, that all the conditions are right, uh, and it's not it's not what you do, it's the way you do it. You know, it, it, it's how that kind of works. So that's the first thing I would say for that. Secondly, I want to just to to, to prick people's ears up about about confirmation bias. Um, confirmation bias is something that I think we all are. Uh, subconsciously um, kind of affected by and what what confirmation bias is that we as human beings we generally naturally go out of our way to find research that backs up already our preconceived ideas and beliefs 
Um, and we don't like to go out of our way naturally to find things that challenge us and that disagree with us. So I'll give an example to, to people. What I, if you think that teaching in groups and group tables is the the best way to teach in your classroom? And I'm not saying it is or isn't here. I'm just saying that if that's what you think, then you will automatically, when you see an article saying group teaching is the best, you'll be like, yeah, yeah, I told you. See, there, there's my proof. And when you see one that says, no, 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 that doesn't work. You need to go back to rows. It's quite easy to go, ah, yeah, but you haven't taught our kids in our school law. You know, you, you don't know what it's like in my classroom. And and we we automatically um, side with things that what we already we already believe in because it's a it's a comfort blanket, isn't it? You know, you want to be you want to know you're doing right. You want to be told that what you've done is right. So we have this kind of automatic shut off to things that challenge us, and um, that's very dangerous because uh, we don't know we're doing it, um, and we need to then understand what confirmation bias is to understand subconsciously when you are actually doing it yourself, you know, and that's an extremely difficult disposition to be in, to understand when you are being, you know, your your confirmation bias is kicking in. But I think that one of the ways to do that is to make sure you don't just surround yourself with people who agree with you. Um, It's it's important to, and I think it's easy on Twitter and things and social networks to, just follow people who agree with you. And when you see someone who says something you know you don't agree with, you kind of get rid of them or you block them, et cetera, et cetera. But we, we're therefore in the danger of living in an echo chamber and believing our own hype. You always need those counter checks, those kind of acid tests, those kind of balance checks. And it's interesting that, you know, I've worked with people uh, in my last couple of schools where a couple of people in my team who we, we're really, really close with, and we say, I wonder what that member of staff thinks of this. And because they're the one who might disagree with it. And actually, it's not because they're wrong. It's actually, well, if, if they disagree with this, and they're a great teacher, but we know they might disagree with it. Right, that's interesting. So what's it saying about what we're doing? You know, And, and it, it let, challenges you to think, well, not everyone always thinks the same. And I think we need that because um, if you only ever go and find things that, that, that confirm what you believe in, then like, why are you even going and looking for stuff anyway? Because you surely already know that you are the, that you are perfect. You know, why why do you have to? You know, so it's kind of yeah, it's really strange, and I think it's. But we've always done it, and we always do it. You know, we you know, you, you look for those. I did it last night. I was watched the you know, the football last night and watched Man City crash out of out of Europe quite happily. You know, and I and I was then looking. I was purposely looking for articles afterwards saying Guardiola should go, and I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I, and I was kind of anything that I saw that said, oh no, it wasn't his fault. I was like, nah, nah, nah. And we, we do, we you know, we want to we want to kind of confirm our beliefs, unfortunately. So yeah, they were the, they're the two things that I think that we really need to understand about research um, to make sure we're not kind of reeled in to headlines or reeled in to kind of just believe in what we already believe. Certainly, I like, yeah, no, I like, I like that one. I like that one. And, and I recently read a book by Matthew Syed called Rebel Ideas. I don't know if you've read it, but yeah, it's on my bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. I highly recommend that to, to listeners because it talks about some of the things that you just spoke about there. And there was a, a really fascinating chapter about, I can't remember, Derek, Derek White about the, the white supremacist mm. and how he eventually turned his echo chamber around and mm-hmm. diversified and he now fights against white supremacy. And it was really fascinating how that kind of listen to people that do challenge your thinking can can change your mind so thank you for that and I, and I loved your what you what you said there about context and confirmation bias so we're now going to dig dig a little bit more into into the book john and and as i said off the layout of the book is great and it, and it makes it really accessible to 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 teachers or teachers of all at all stages of their career and and in it you talk about teacher 1.0 
and then talk about becoming teacher 2.0. Can you talk about the idea behind that? Yeah, I, I really wanted to, again, not not write this as a book of uh, John Tate knows everything, uh, you've all been doing it wrong, I've been doing it right, because everything in two, Teacher 1.0, I've done. You know, this is, and, 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 and this is why I wanted to frame it as Teacher 1.0 and Teacher 2.0, rather than like bad teacher and good teacher or kind of, you know, less experience or more experience. This is ultimately where a lot of people start. And I wanted to engage with people and hook in with people to, to kind of say, listen, you know, I did this. We've all done this. This is, you know, and I want people to recognize things in their own practice that they're doing out of, not out of kind of um, bad teaching, but actually just out of the very kind of goodness of what they've been trained and all the, the best intentions. But actually, it's at odds with the kind of science you know, of learning and research. So the Teacher 1.0 section hopefully lets people um, look into the mirror a little bit, uh, reflect on what they're doing, um, because, like I say, we've all done it. There's the, everything in, in that Teacher 1.0 section um, I have done, I've, I, I've done it, I've seen it. I've probably sat at a professional development session and talked to people about doing it as well, about wanting to do it. Um, but again, this is about a, a bit about a kind of coming of age of kind of saying, listen, this is what we used to do. It's fine. There's no kind of no one's pointing any fingers. But actually, here's now what the research says. And here's now what we can do. So Teacher 2.0 then gives four practical examples for every different chapter in the book of how you can put into practice the science of learning the research. So hopefully, um, yeah, people will be able to engage with it because they will see themselves at some point somewhere in those Teacher 1.0s <clears throat> like, like I have done. Um, and um, and then be able to transition through the research into Teacher 2.0. Um, that's you know that's that's how I how I envisage the kind of you know the, the chapters uh, the chapters going and hopefully makes it an easy read. Um, and again, not a very non-threatening kind of you know way to to write it by saying, listen, we've all done this and it's fine, but here's where we need to go now. And certainly, and I certainly felt through reading it that I was reading reading Teacher 1.0 and thinking that's what I do in my practice. I do that. I do that as well. So it's exactly the same. And, and as you say, it's not to not to say that it's wrong. It's just what we thought was right. And by understanding the research, we can then look at different ideas. So we're going to unpick a few of the ideas, and I want you to to share kind of your thoughts from the book and maybe share some of the ideas because you mentioned there that it was for each yeah. chapter. There's four ideas. And we're going to start with with retrieval practices, something that teachers can go and do tomorrow when they're in their in their classrooms so how do we embed retrieval practice into our teaching i think it's just about, it's about and i think what's interesting is that retrieval practice seems to be the one that's on the lips of people the most it's the one that's i think when we talk about filtering that research down it's the one that certainly hit our classrooms the most out of any of the the, the topics that i've kind of put in there um um, so I won't bore people with kind of what retrieval practice is, and, and you know, you, you know, I think a lot of people are kind of are on that are on that kind of curve now. Um, but in terms of answering your question, in terms of how can we embed it, it's about making sure that that there are regular opportunities for students to actually do that fetch and carry in their mind of retrieving information from their long-term memory. Um, and it's about making sure we can put that into our practice almost every lesson. Uh, and certainly, you know, a great way of doing that is, you know, can you have at some point every lesson a retrieval task? So that students are continually having to retrieve previous information because we know the research says that the more we retrieve it and the and, you know the, the the stronger our memory gets of anything we're going to retrieve um and a bit like you know a phone number um i mean i'm 42 now i remember when i was when i was younger you know when everyone used to ring the house phone you used to say well my mom and dad used to teach me to say the house phone number back when you opened it up you know you answer the phone 
So how did you remember your phone number and how do you probably still remember your first phone number right now? It's because you continually had to retrieve that information and do something with it. You know, that's what it's about. It's about doing something with it. And that's why we all probably can probably still remember from about 11, 12 years old what our what our home phone number was because we, if you were trained like me by mum and dad to answer it like that. Um, so how can we do it? Practical examples of making, you know, maybe starting with a starter activity where you've got something like a super six quiz where you're going to ask six questions from the previous lesson. Dead easy to do. Um, and that's a great way of, of, of hitting two or three big areas. It, it, it gets kids in. It gets kids settled. You do a retrieval. So you, 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 you kids have to do something with the information. You have a bit of assessment floating so you can work out, have kids actually understood what they have from last time and have they learned it. You know, there's so many different things that actually that, that creates at the start of your lesson. It creates routine, habit, uh, a real academic nature. There's, there's so many great ways that that does. But then you can start to then kind of mix it up. Um, and I know we, we, we might get into kind of talking about spacing in a little while, but you can then start to kind of have different areas where rather than just we're going to ask some questions from last lesson. How about last lesson, last month, last unit? So now you start to then go, OK, we're now starting to really test that retrieval because we're not just looking at the short term memory of last lesson because you and I both know last lesson might actually mean yesterday. You know, it might for some subjects mean two weeks ago, but for some subjects it might just mean yesterday. And if you're teaching first lesson today and you were teaching them last lesson yesterday, it's probably only about 12 hours between, you know, or 12 or 15 hours between. So there's not a long time for that information to have kind of disappeared. Um, so starting to increase that by last last lesson, last unit, last month. Um, but also making sure the big thing I want to talk to people about is making it low stakes. This isn't about scaring people or calling it a test or calling it an exam like let you know there's there's certain words in our uh, vocabulary that we hate you know we we hate the words test we hate the word exam we hate the word revise we hate the words dentist or do you know there's at least certain things that like just no matter how old and big and scary you are like they're just not nice words and test and exam are one of those so i think it's staying away from those words and thinking about the psychology behind that and just saying we're gonna have a quiz because actually most people like a quiz. You know, it's kind of like, oh, we're going to have a quiz. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, this is really a test. Um, and it's it's just been really clever with you, you know, the language you're using that kids like quizzes. They hate tests. You know, like, don't use the word test. And make it really low stakes. So you, you're not going to you're not gonna mark it down in a, in, a, in a mark book. Because actually, the vast majority of the time we put things in mark books, we don't run anything with the marks anyway. You know, I talk about this in the assessment section. Let's. It, this is just about using the quiz to, to, to help them uh, improve their memory, not to put something in your mark book to say how well that kid's done. It's the process of the students actually retrieving the information that's making them more intelligent um, and, and can retain information, not what you write in your mark book. So yeah, make it really low stakes, make it easy, uh, sorry, not easy, make it um, easy to implement so you're not having to have lots of papers and exam papers, all this kind of stuff, just literally five questions, six questions on the board, quick fire, this is what we're gonna do, because again, it's understanding that it's not about the scores the kids get. It's about the process of retrieving the information that makes their memory stronger. Okay, so moving on from, from retrieval practice, and you mentioned the idea of spacing within within your last last response in retrieval practice. So we're gonna, gonna explore that a little bit now. And can you share what spacing means and how we can use spacing to sequence our curriculum content? Yeah, spacing is, is really key when we're talking about retrieval practice because we've got to actually students have to or, or human beings have to almost forget something to be able to retrieve it and it's far too easy if we've just been taught something and then we're asked to retrieve it it's in our short-term memory it's too easy it's not it's not too it's not difficult enough 
So we need to leave enough time uh, for, for students to almost forget it to then make it more difficult for them to retrieve it. So the way that this kind of works and the way that we should think about it in terms of curriculum design and the sequence of the lessons is that we need to then space out some of the content. Um, and historically, and, and from a teacher 1.0 uh, kind of thought process, we have blocked together um, all of our content. And what that means to listeners is that we have traditionally taught one topic from A to Z. You know, we've started on week one, we've taught the whole topic, and then we've tested it. And that seems, even now when I'm saying it, seems eminently sensible. You know, like, why would you not want to do that? That's what we've been taught to do. That's what we It's just sensible, which again goes back to the idea of 1.0, not being threatening in terms of you've been doing this wrong all the time. That's just what we've all thought was, why would you not want to do that? But what we're now realizing is that um, there's not enough time for students to forget that. So, of course, they're going to do quite well in the test at the end because you've just taught them it for the last four, five, six lessons. So therefore, that's all they've known. They're in their comfort zone and um, you know they haven't had time to forget it. And then we, we then wonder at the end of the year why students struggle to remember the stuff that you did like a year and a half ago. Well, because they've not done it since then. You know, you've not really had that regular testing of it. So, so the way we, we need to do this now and the way the research is talking about it is making sure that if you are going to test something, you might, you might teach something in a block if you still want to teach it in a block but you then teach the next block before you test the first block. So at least you give time for students to kind of forget that for them to retrieve it. Um, or you can start to mix up the content a little bit. So you then start to, you know, to, to, to come back with some of your retrieval practice quizzes, again, going back to the about where you can talk about that last month, last unit, and you are almost all the time kind of going back and forth, um, you know, giving, um, you know, g g giving students the opportunity to do that. So I think it's, it's really important to understand how we, how we need to space those things out. Um, and that then comes down to you know, your scheme of learning, you know, your, your curriculum design and working out when you're going to put things in and when you're going to give enough time to then go back and revisit it um, and always revisiting content throughout the kind of year um, and, and, and getting students to do something with it, not just, not just reteaching it, because we know now from the research that reteaching it is far less significant and far less... Um, it has far less impact than actually re retrieving it. So it's about rather than just reteaching, because what happens you teach something, students not long go, oh yeah, 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 I remember this, I recognise this, and there's no engagement with it. There's no nothing beneath the surface kind of happens. We're not along. Yeah, yeah, I've seen this before. Yeah, yeah. Getting students to do something with it, so re actually retrieving it again. It's how do we get the students to do something and engage in it meaningfully? And the only way you do that is by getting them to retrieve it. So by retesting or something like that further down the line is far better than reteaching it. So yeah, that's really how kind of spacing kind of works. Um, in terms of some some quite easy ways to do that, you can. There's a great way to do it with, with what I've called in the book lagged homework. So um, give students a homework task three weeks after you've taught something and the kids initially might go they, what are you doing this for sir or miss this is really hard yeah i know that's why i'm doing it like again this idea that it's not about entertainment it's about i know it's difficult but this is the perfect conditions for you to learn so you know making sure that, that, that when we are setting that lag time we are informing students why and telling them why uh, rather than just kind of being mean um you know our kids seeing it as that but what's really interesting about spacing is that um that all the research suggests and tells us actually that students don't like it.
And the reason students don't really like it is because you know, it's difficult. But I think it's about making sure as a, as a, as a teacher, you, um, you you talk to students about why it is. You, know, you, you sell the why and you tell them that it, you know, it's the perfect learning conditions for this. Um, otherwise, they might just think, well, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you setting something three weeks after we, you know, you, you've taught it? So, uh, yeah, I think it, it, uh, it's a really easy way to do that um, and, and, and making sure that you can kind of do that. Another really quick way of doing it is making sure that any tests or any kind of assessments you do are also cumulative as well. So not just testing and examining what you've done in this unit, but then also tagging on two or three questions from the last unit and then another few questions from the unit before. So you're always, always, you know, retrieving that information from a, you know, from a period of you know, spacing. So yeah, easy ways to do it, but it's just getting your mindset around that across the year. Certainly, and I love that idea of, of lagged homework because it's it's so easy for a teacher to go away and implement it as soon as they go back to school or for Scottish teachers who are currently back at school. Just what you're teaching now, you can give homework in a couple of weeks' time. And you've mentioned a couple of times in the interview so far, John, this idea of desirable difficulty. Could you just spend a, a few moments speaking to the idea of what you mean by desirable difficulty? Yeah, and that's a term really coined by uh, Professor Robert Bjork uh, in his work around kind of retrieval practice and spacing. Um, and what it means is that making it the at the desired level uh, of kind of, of, of difficulty, I suppose, that, that actually is the optimum or optimal conditions for learning. And I suppose if you are... You know, if you're going to plant a seed in the, in the ground, you would want to make sure that it's you know that, that it's wet, it's damp, you know, it's quite warm as well. You know, otherwise, if it's frosty and there's no, you know, you're not going to get any growth. And it's about making sure: have we got the desired environment for that to work? And and, and with desirable difficulties, it means certainly for spacing, leaving some time before you retrieve it. Um, but students don't always like it, and I think it's about making sure that we we talk to students about it because, unfortunately, sp- um, blocked. Uh, you know, the, the 1.0 way of doing it, that blocked learning, students probably will get better short-term results from it. And we need to understand this. This is not about getting better short-term results from spacing. Spacing might might actually have, you know, more, uh, uh, you know, worse short-term results because it's more difficult, but it will always improve long-term learning. And we need to understand the bigger picture here because students will always, always, always opt for something that gives them the confidence right there, right now, how well have I done? But actually, as, a, as, a, as educators and, and as professionals, we need to, to talk to them about, yes, that's okay, but long-term, this is how we learn and this is how we get things to stick. So, yeah, students will always opt for what they think works right straight away and what gives them confidence, uh, and we need to remember that um, so that we can at least talk to them about, you know, and, and treat them like human, treat them like adults, talk to them about what the research says. Again, in a in student speak, you know, as we would do with the, with the curriculum, you don't just give them the whole curriculum document, break it down for them, tell them why, so that he, he can understand that, yeah, I get why we're doing this now, sir, rather than, you're crazy, why, why on earth are we doing this? You know, this doesn't make any sense. Well, here's what we're doing, it. here's why, and actually, I'm really confident the research says internationally, this will, this will have better long-term learning. And hopefully, as you go on the year, they'll start to, understand and appreciate that because those low stakes quizzing lessons that you're doing with the last unit last month last topic things they'll start to be doing even better and going oh yeah, yeah we understand this now we, we now realize why this is good so yeah that that's that, that's interesting to understand and to make sure the students understand that as well so you've mentioned through your, your previous responses this idea of mixing up and it and kind of to go hand in hand with with spacing is this idea of interleaving and when i when i read through the book I, i'm very much teacher 1.0 when it comes to, to interleaving and a lot of what you said there just kind of screams at me is exactly what i'm doing so what does the research tell us about interleaving so that we can then become teacher 2.0 
Yeah, what's really to start with, what I'd like to say on interleaving is that whenever I speak to people about it, they always mention spacing interleaving as one, as one almost one word, as if it's kind of hyphenated in between, and I'm, there's not many people that actually know the difference between it. Um, hence why I think it's really important for us to understand that. And what I, I, I you know, I gather, and lots of people think that it's very, very similar, but yes, you will all, you will automatically in, introduce spacing if you're interleaving, because the idea of interleaving is that you are going to compare and contrast or mix up different skills, themes, and, and, and content, so you can see the difference between them. So you will automatically have some level of spacing between your skills if you are uh, you know, mixing and comparing and contrasting. But the research really focuses in on, on how interleaving per se is really important, because what it does, it allows you to really compare and contrast different skills, different solutions, and, and, and what different things are asking of you. Uh, and what I mean by that is, if I give you an example like you asked for for Teacher 1.0, in, in a maths lesson, a math teacher traditionally might have done one lesson on um, multiplication, or one whole lesson on um, you know angles, angles on a angles on a straight line. And if all of your questions coming up are of those of the nature of that nature, you know what's happening, you know what's coming next, you know the solution you're going to be using, you've been taught the the solution. So it's very very easy when you start to interleave questions together, and suddenly you then put in there um, you know a division question or a question about uh, opposite angles. Um, you then got to really read the question and understand what's this question actually asking me? How do I need to attack it differently? What solution do I need to use? And you then really get into to, to grips with understanding exactly what's happening. And, and the research, if I, if I give you the, the research behind this, the research study that came from this that I've mentioned in the book is from Cornell and Bjork, and they talked about uh, two groups of students that were looking at artists and paintings. Um, one group did it in a, in a kind of blocked way, and they just studied all of the uh, paintings from one artist at one at one time and really mastered that artist, everything they knew about the artist inside out. Then they moved on to another artist and, and did exactly the same, and, and so on and so on. The interleaving group continually looked at different paintings from different artists side by side all the time. And... The research initially was suggesting that, well, surely the blocked group would do better on the final test because they knew everything about that one artist inside out before they moved on and they really mastered it. But what turned out was that that wasn't what happened. The results showed that there was a significant uh, increase in the, in, the, in, the, in the percentage of uh, correct answers when they had to identify the paintings for the interleaving group because when they were studying them, they were able to see the intricate differences between uh, the, you know, the, the, the paintings and they were able to see how it was different and why it was different. And they learned more about it in that way than they did just by being in a comfort zone of knowing, oh, yeah, that's the same paintings, it looks the same. So I think it's really important for us to do that. And I think from, a, from our point of view, Darren, from a PE teacher's point of view, I always think of it as if, if you're teaching someone how to play tennis and you're stood at the net and you are, you're just hitting forehands, and, and they're returning forehands. Then they're stood with, they've already got the grip correct in their hand. They've got the right grip for a forehand. They've got the stance right. They know where the ball's going to land. Their body position is turned on to the side. So, of course, it's easy because they're just going to hit 20 forehands in a row. They're not going to get it wrong. It's easy. They're in their comfort zone. You suddenly then start to say, right, the ball is going to be coming anywhere now. It could be a, a volley where you've got to come in the net. You might have to go backwards. You might have to twist your grip to be a, a backhand. You might have to... Suddenly, when you're interleaving all those skills together, it's more like a game, isn't it? It's more like real life, and it becomes a lot more difficult. Again, it's that desirable difficulty. So the, the key with interleaving, though, is not doing it too early. The, the students have got to be at a certain level of proficiency 
in order to do that. You imagine a novice tennis player and you say, right, I'm going to feed the ball anywhere. Like it's going to be carnage. The ball will be hitting the back of the, you know, the back net all the time. Once they get to a certain level and they're covering or hitting that forehand on that backhand, right, now I'm going to mix it up. Now I'm going to place the ball anywhere. That's where interleaving really works. And we didn't know it is interleaving as PE teachers back in the day, but you look at it now and go, yeah, that's completely sensible. You would always vary the, the pitch on cricket or whatever. You would always vary it because it becomes too easy. But again, how can we then transfer those things that we know from those kind of sporting skills into the classroom and make sure we're not just doing everything about one skill in history or geography or whatever? How can we mix it up so students can identify and compare and contrast the differences? And that's where the real skill of interleaving comes in, not just the fact that it's kind of spacing. That's why it's very different to spacing, even though, like I say, people still say, oh, yeah, I know about spacing and interleaving. And I'm like, no, yeah, I, I kind of think you think, think it's one thing. It is very, very different, even though it's interlinked. Certainly, thank you. and thanks to the nod for to, to PE teachers there. We've been getting interleaving right for, for, for decades. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> We're now gonna gonna chat a little bit about, about assessment and it's a very interesting topic given the given the current circumstances. Um in the in the book, what ideas do you give for us to, to better use assessment? Right. The, the the first thing and the overarching kind of message is that using assessment for learning and not just using it as assessment of learning. Uh, because I think that far too many times we do assessments in whatever guise it is in our classrooms or our, our dining halls, et cetera, et cetera, and we log, the, we log the marks in our mark book or we put them in a spreadsheet. But what happens the next day? Does your teaching change because of it? Lots of people, I don't think it does. You know, we, we, log, the, we log the grades and we, we, you know, a, a bit like, I suppose, someone who's fairly weak with behavior management Right, I want to put a point on the system for you. And the kid like kid goes, all right, okay. Because actually they know nothing happens as a result of it. And, and that's, that's it. It's about using assessment properly and, and being what Dylan William calls responsive teaching. How are you going to change your teaching the next day or the next week based on the information you've gleaned from the assessment? If all you're going to do is um, record the information, you know, nobody in the world has ever improved because someone has written a score down. Just, it just doesn't work. What are you going to do next? So that's that's the, the the big kind of overarching theme of like thinking about assessment of what what's the point? What are you actually doing this for? Why are you actually getting kids to answer some questions and write their marks down? What are you going to do with it? Um, so it's thinking about how we can then use it uh, to, to really improve it. And then also then getting into the in your works of, well, do you know the difference between, I think most teachers would always add, say, oh, I know the difference between formative and summative assessment. Of course I do. But when you dig into it a bit deeper, I'm not sure people really, really, truly understand the difference between what actually is a formative assessment, what it should be used for, how it should be used, and how it should be used as, as Dylan William refers to, responsive teaching, and what a summative assessment is, and again, why it is used that way. And, and you know, summative assessments, for people who are a little bit unsure and maybe sitting in that teacher 1.0 camp and not wanting to put their hand up, you know, and I admit that, Summative assessments are you know, end of year, you know, you know exam papers that, that cover a wide range of topics and are standardised so that if someone in Aberdeen or someone in you know in, in in Durham sits the same exam and gets and we can then compare the marks. It's been done in the same way, the same questions, but there's so many different flaws with that that um, you can, it can't be responsive you know, as much as you want it to be. It can't be flexible. It covers so many areas that you don't really know how much they've learned on one topic because you might only get one or two questions on one area and some areas you get no questions on it. Um, so there are lots of different, but, but so many people still use summative assessments for formative reasons or try to. 
you know, by using those exam papers throughout the year. Um, and it doesn't really tell you a lot, you know. So it's it's understanding the difference between those two, how you can use them, um, and also really thinking about how, if if your assessment, and this was a massive uh, light bulb moment for me, like probably the biggest light bulb moment that I've had in the last few years, if your assessments only tell you what students can't do, and it doesn't tell you why they can't do it, then you're never ever ever going to be able to move a student forward. And I read some work. Um, <clears throat> it was a it was in uh, Craig Barton's uh, book about about diagnostic questions, and I was like, I was blown away because I, I, you know, this idea of multiple choice questioning, I thought was, I always thought was lazy teaching, and again, going back to that confirmation bias, I, I was brought up in education thinking multiple choice questioning where you could just guess the answers was lazy, lazy teaching, lazy exams, etc., etc., and I stayed away from it until I read and, and I heard the, the, the podcast from Craig Barton, I read it in his book, and I was literally like. Oh wow, wow! I've, I've, this is this is something that I need to understand, and it's the idea that we need to know why students can't do something, and if there's a misconception. Because if you and I take a, a question and we get it wrong, and we just make a, a miscalculation and we get something wrong, chances are next time we might get it right. Okay, a bit more work, we'll get it right. If we've got a misconception about something, unless it's corrected, we will always, 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 till the day we die, get that question wrong. Because we believe that the method to get to that answer, you know, so if you if you think that angles on a straight line in maths add up to 360 degrees instead of 180, doesn't matter how many times you have a question on angles on a straight line, you are getting that question wrong till the day you die, until someone actually corrects that. But if as a teacher you've just seen that someone's got it wrong and wrong and wrong, and you don't know why, that kid's never going to get it right. As soon as you identify why that is, you can correct it and the kid can get it right after that. So the idea of assessment being just about what's wrong and right and, and you know somebody got 70% somebody got 40% doesn't mean to say that student has learned many more than anyone else it's about understanding why did they get things wrong how can we correct it and how can we be responsive and I think that's been a huge light bulb moment for me in terms of um, you know misconceptions versus mistakes and I've not really until the last couple of years really thought about that in enough detail about when students have got things wrong in my lessons is it because it's a mistake or is it because it's a deep-seated, you know, deep-rooted misconception? And 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 certainly, again, I think that um, I could have done that a lot better over the, over the years, definitely. So I like the way you summarised there between formative assessment and summative assessment and bringing in what Dylan Williams calls responsive teaching and, and that idea of, of understanding why. And I love their... Yeah, yeah, um, your confession there about multiple choice questions and, and how if we understand how to use them better we can help understand why and it brings us kind of smoothly on to the to feedback and and, and feedback's been something that, that teachers have, have burdened ourselves by confusing it perhaps from marking and, and bringing about ideas such as, as triple marking which has significantly increased our workload how do we then make feedback that is that is both more efficient but also impactful for our students yeah, and, and this is something that I think is, like you say, has been the bane of teachers all over the, the, the world, really, that we, we, we've, again, going back to what we said right at the start of this podcast, this has been research has been miscommunicated or, or misunderstood, should I probably say, because we've all heard the word, we've, we've all read the research or, or read the headlines saying that feedback is kind of king, and it's, you know, it was at the top of the Sutton Trust toolkit for you know, the most impact, et cetera, et cetera. It never, ever, ever, ever once said marking, never. Yet, what's happened? We've all taken it as main marking. When it hasn't, it's meant feedback. 
and you and I and listeners will know that feedback comes in in a huge range of, of, of different kind of uh, you know ways in the classroom and, and, and different practices. Um, so getting it right is making sure that first of all, never give any feedback unless you want students to do anything with it. You know that, that there's no point if you're just going to write in kids' books and nothing's going to happen as a result of it, and the kids aren't going to do anything with it. What's the point? You're completely wasting your time at home on a night. So making sure that that happens. Um, making sure that also, and again, coming back to because Dylan Williams is a, is, a, is a great voice in this in terms of his assessment and feedback, and so it kind of links together. But also making sure that the feedback is more work for the uh, for the recipient than it is for the donor. You know, I've spent you know, uh, enormous amount of times writing things and writing big paragraphs on kind of work and seeing the kid look at it and then just put it in the bag and do nothing with it. And you just kind of like, oh my word, like you're just crushed. And it's about, you know, it needs to be more work for them. Um, I did a little study as part of my uh, NPQH where I observed somebody giving feedback to a class of middle ability uh, boys, year nine boys in an English lesson. And um, it was about putting grades on work. And um, I observed the class uh, receiving some uh, work with uh, a paragraph of written uh, text on, you know, uh, feedback, and a grade. <clears throat> they all got their work back, start the lesson. I sat and watched what happened. Um, it would have taken them probably a good 20 seconds to read all the comments. What happens? Books go out. Kids open their books. There's silence for about half a second. Kids look for the grade, see the grade. What do you get? What do you get? I got an A, I got a B, I got a B. And they're all traded grades immediately, tell them what they've got. No one gave a damn about what the comments said. We set it up again two weeks later, similar piece of work, same length of comments, same kind of paragraph, five or six uh, lines in the paragraph, this time no grade. What happens? Students get their books, silence for about six, seven or eight seconds. Kids are actually reading the grade because, sorry, reading the comments because there's no grade. And that idea that, you know, that as soon as you put a grade on something, you almost wipe off the comment completely because kids aren't really bothered about what you've written underneath. They just want to know how well have I done. And it's not about how well you've done. It's about realistically, how can you make this better? And that's what we, that's what I think that we need to focus on rather than how well has someone done? How can you make this better? Because you can always make it better. It's never perfect. You know, even, and I, I think we, we've seen that in lesson observations as well. Um, People just don't want to be required as improvement. And as soon as they hear the word good or outstanding, ah, oh, great, that's all right then, class. And like, no, 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 but there's still things you can do. Oh, no, but it's all right, though. I didn't get – and they don't want to know. You know, like think about when you took your driving test, and I always use this analogy. You When you suddenly hear the word passed, you're like, give me the keys, give me the keys. And they're like, yeah, but you got a few minors. No, I'm not really bothered. I've passed, mate. I'm off. And that idea that we the, – the, when, when there's a grade on it, and the research – in the book talks about a research article from 2011 from Alfie Cohn that I read and I was really, really angry about thinking, because it talks about how grading in work is so dangerous and it, it leads students to uh, extrinsic kind of um, materialistic kind of, you know, motivation for wanting to do it for the grade, not for the, not for their own um, educational purposes, not because of learning. And, and, and I read it and I was so, so annoyed. I was, I took to Twitter. I was like, this is, how have I not known about this? This is disgusting. And, and, and it, it does, it, it really, uh, it really shows how we can do it a lot better. Yet how we've all again been sucked into, not for any fault of our own, this idea that, well, of, well, of course you put a grade on something. You've got a market, haven't you? You know, and this idea of red pen and a mark, but all this research just says that as soon as you put a mark, a grade on something, you may as well not bother writing anything underneath. And uh, yeah, I think, again, we can engage with that a lot more as teachers because that, unfortunately, is the thing that drives people out of the profession the most. So it should be something that we engage with the most to work out how we can do it better. 
and how, for the vast majority of time, we're spending enormous amounts of time, effort, human resource money on feeding back to students when it's having little or no impact at all. Uh, and that's really kind of um, saddening to, to know that, but it's it's a reality, isn't it? It certainly is. Yeah. And, and I think that idea of, of putting the grade, I can I can think back to my to my own learning when I was a student. I just wanted to know the, know the grade, whereas if there was feedback there, that's what you focus on, and that is where we can have the impact. And it brings me on to, to my next question about learning versus performance. And you mentioned this way back at the start, I want, to, I want to ask you, John, what, what is the difference between learning and performance? And to, can I supplement that? Can we, can we really see learning? And, and if we can, how do we differentiate between learning and performance? Yeah, this is the most kind of, this is one of the, uh, the most, it's one of the hotly debated ones, I think, because I think it, lots of people, you know, I'm talking to people and they still sit on, you know, they sit on both sides of the fence here. And some people say, yes, you can see learning. And other people say no, you can't. So I think it, it's quite contentious with, with people, which is it's a nice topic for conversation actually, because you get some quite um, passionate responses from people. I think so. It's, it's a great one to kind of to discuss with people. And again, if you're listening to this and you want to kind of open up a conversation with somebody, have this conversation because it's really interesting and it really makes you think as well about what are you actually seeing. So learning versus performance. Um, the nutshell of what I've written and, and what the research talks about is that you can't see learning. You can only see performance. And what that means, whether you agree or disagree with that, and hopefully it's going to challenge your kind of thinking on this while you're listening, is that <clears throat> you can only see at that point in time when you assess something how someone has performed on that on that given day, at that given moment, on that given question. We've all seen students that have learned things and have been super intelligent and have been tripped up by a question and haven't performed well on the day. Again, it comes back to back to football, whether it's sport, wherever it is. We've seen better teams, better individuals not perform. And it's not about learning. It's about how they performed at that given point. Uh, has a question tripped them up? Have they got hair fever? Has there been an argument at home with their parents the night before? All these things that have actually influenced negatively the performance. And equally, we can also see performance increase way out of proportion where they have got lucky. They have they have decided to revise the one topic that comes up on the test and before and bingo, it comes up. Get in. I know there's things that that's happened at university before where you've thought, oh God, that I was lucky there because I looked at that the, the minute before I walked in. Or, or, you know, so we can performance can be influenced positively by that as well. Um, and we need to understand as, as members of staff as well as teachers. And I still see that happening a lot where we do revision sessions the day before or the lesson before we, we set an exam. Now, as a teacher, you're never, ever going to do a revision session on topics that aren't on the exam that you've just written, right? You, you know, so therefore, you are positively influencing the outcome. And then the kids do well on the test and you're like, oh, wow, great. The kids did amazing. Well, of course they did. Like you did a session, the session before, on the things that were going to come on the test. Like it, it, it's natural that's going to happen. So I, I think it, what it talks about is, you can't, the research says that you can't observe learning during practice because it's too uh, short term, it's too easy. Um, and they have to, again, have that time to have forgotten something to enable it to actually see it. So, again, it needs to be over a longer period of time. It probably needs to be more than once, you know, if you were going to kind of judge that consistently over a period of time. And, you know, all you see at any given point is how someone has performed at that, at that stage, how well they've understood the question, how well they've done that. Yes, you know, there's some learning in the background, but I think it's it's still massively open to discussion about whether or not you can really see learning. Um, 
or whether you just see how well somebody has performed based on what they've you know what they've kind of learned and what they've remembered what they've been told what the conditions are how they're feeling um so but what this really does it opens up a, a huge dialogue and, and chapter for teachers to really go wow what actually have i been assessing over the last 20 years have i really been assessing and and and, and viewing learning or have I just been assessing performance? And it and it really takes you all the way back to kind of like the foundations of you know, what am I actually doing in my classroom, and how am I assessing it? And it, and it's really a kind of like a you know stop kind of stop in the sands and go wow like hang on I just need to think about this for a bit I need to process this because what am I actually doing? And therefore why do my kids always do well on my interview at tests but not do well at the end of the year? Well there you go you've been assessing performance all the way through. Because you haven't spaced it, you've been blocking it, you haven't interleaved it, you haven't left average. You know, all these things start to add up and you go, ah, okay, now I see. But again, it takes a bit of time to get to that point. Certainly, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful way to, to end the interview section. We're going to move on to, to my final three there. But that idea of learning versus performance and can we really see it, it, it really is fascinating discussion and, and it really questions what you've been doing in, in part of your teaching practice but before we move on to my final three questions john these are the questions that i ask every guest that comes on the podcast could you share a little bit where sorry i'll start that again could you share where um, listeners can go and buy your book we've, we've we've scratched the surface of the book and we've dug deep into a few chapters there are many more chapters for them to to go into as well could you share with them where they can go and buy it? Because I highly encourage them to do so. And could you also share with them where they can find out more about with you and perhaps engage with you on social media? Yeah, in terms of the book, uh, two best places to get it either direct from Bloomsbury, so bloomsbury.com, you can get it from them at this at this moment of recording. Uh, they've got a 25% off um, deal on at the moment for like a pre-order. Uh, so if you uh, listen to it in the first kind of few hours that it's been released, and you, know, you might still be able to get that. Um, or I suppose a lot of people's go to is Amazon. Um, all of our books are on Amazon, and there's usually a kind of a 10 or 15% discount kind of on there anyway with, with Amazon purchases, so that you can get it on there and it'll ship pretty quickly. Um, I'm also doing a, a live book launch on the Monday, the 24th of August, where I'm going to, there's a YouTube live link, I'm going to start putting that out in the next few days. And um, it's going to be about, about 45 minutes or an hour where I'm going to talk through some of the areas of the book, why I've written it, and take some live questions as well. So that, that'll be on kind of YouTube Live, um, and I'll be, I'll be posting that soon. And the best way to find where that is and how to find more about me is if you're on Twitter, I'm, I'm Team Tate, T-A-I-T, Team Tate on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. You'll be able to find me as John Tate. And I've also got a, a Facebook education page, Edutate. So any one of those areas, um, I've got a YouTube channel as well. So just put me in a social media. You'll find me somewhere, um, and uh, we, we, we'll be able to connect in that way there. Certainly, I think I'll definitely look forward to, to hearing more from you at your book lunch because it's been an incredibly fascinating discussion throughout the interview and, and I'm incredibly grateful for you for your patience we've had a few technical issues with the listeners we didn't know but thank you so much for that <laughs> now it brings us on to our final three questions John and, and, and I get some great um, responses from, from all my guests and, and I'm really fascinated to, see, to hear what you have to say so my first one there is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? Right, I'd like to mention two, if I may, here, because I think from two different kind of air, uh, stages of my career, which uh, might kind of resonate with people. The first one, and it was the first book that I was probably the first educational book that I read, and it was certainly the first one where I was like, "Wow, this is interesting." It was called *An Ethic of Excellence* by Ron Berger, 
And anybody who picks it up at any point, this is the, 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 the perfect example of don't judge a book by its cover because the cover of it, or as it was anyway, with its Jada, it looks so boring and it looks like it wouldn't engage me at all. But actually, the, the content of it is just magnificent. And it, for anyone who hasn't read it, it talks about... Um, Making things relevant to kids, uh, drafting, you know, and redrafting ideas, uh, critique, uh, and I read it, and um, I remember just thinking at that point in my career, I was probably about what ten years into my career, started in senior leadership as an assistant head teacher, thought I had it all kind of worked out. Read this book, and I remember just thinking to myself, "Oh my word, what a crap teacher I am! Why have I not been doing this before?" It was like a real, like, whoo, like a reality check, and. And it really inspired me to, because for anyone who's know Ron, but Ron used to, he talks about being a, um, a, a craftsman, you know, in his work, and 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 and, and really, there's just a, an understanding of what really teaching should be about. And and I and I kind of then met him a, a few kind of about six months after he came over to uh, to, to England, and he did a, a session down in Doncaster at a school. Uh, Jamie Portman had him over for, at a school in Doncaster, and. Um, just yeah, just unbelievable. And, and it, people might, if people are thinking, why have I heard Ron Berger before? You might have heard of Austin's Butterfly. Um, that maybe way you might think, ah, now I know, now I know the guy. I've heard his name before. So, but it, 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 that was an, an amazing book and really kind of gave me a real insight into why I need to be kind of better as a teacher. And then the second one I wanted to mention was what a, a lot more recent really uh, was Daisy Christodoulou's book uh, Making Good Progress. And uh, just I'm a serial non-finisher of books. Um, and I remember tweeting about this saying, this is the first book I've actually properly read from cover to cover and kind of not almost stopped. And we were going away like as a family and we were on the, on the train down to London, I think it was. And I was reading on the train and I just kind of couldn't put it down because from that assessment point of view, in terms of what I mentioned earlier about the difference between summative and formative assessments and the use of assessments and making inferences and learning versus performance, I was just kind of, it, it's, a mag, it's magic. And I get anyone who's thinking about assessments, and I used to always wrongly if you'd have said to me four five six ten years ago 15 years ago assessment what comes into your head now i'd have said to you numbers data spreadsheets you know that kind of stuff and now i'm not thinking about that at all i'm thinking about design and questions and misconceptions and mistakes and it's really opened my eyes to what assessment should be um so those two books have made a, a, a big difference even if they're probably 10 years apart uh, in in my reading uh, and you know, I've obviously I'm not saying they're the only two I've read in those ten years, but in terms of you know, kind of start and end point, I think they they've been um, fantastic for me. Brilliant, thank you. Great reflections on on what are two two wonderful books, especially that the Ron Berger one. As as you say, his, his ideas around craftsmanship and critique and, and redrafting and redrafting to to create a masterpiece really really is uh, fascinating reading and really gets you thinking about how you how you respond to the people's work in your classroom. So thank you very much. My second question, John, is if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? Um, I say this to, to trainees a lot. And, I, and what I like, when I give advice, I try to kind of give it, not cliched, but I try to kind of give it in like sound bites so people can remember it quite easy. So my advice to people, hey, if you want to write this down, is don't let date night become data night. And I think what I mean by that is that we, 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 we shouldn't be, martyrs to the profession we need to have our hobbies we need to have our our family time we need to have our downtime outside of the the school and the, and the four walls of our classrooms because we need to think of ourselves like professional athletes and athletes don't train and train and train and train because that's where they become fatigued they become they, they pick up injuries easier uh, they make mental errors they make mistakes 
we're exactly the same as teachers. If you don't get much sleep, if, you, if all you've done is go home and do more work and more work and don't see your kids and don't go out on the weekend, you get frustrated. You have a short fuse. You can probably look in the mirror and think, oh, I dealt with that really badly with that kid and I shouted at them because, and it's not because the kid's done anything. It's because you've stayed up for the last four nights and you haven't seen your family and you've not, there's a knock on. So it's making sure that um, we are, we're rested we are um, we looked after ourselves uh, and we have time away from the school because our kids need the best of us. They need the best teacher. They need the best, you know, um, of you. They don't need half of you or three quarters of you. Um, so yeah, making sure that you don't let date night become date night. Uh, there's always a time where you can do it. And as well, you know, I always say you'll get another one here. You'll get another a little soundbite, a two for one deal here. Um, it's not the load that breaks us. It's the way we carry it. And I think that you know by making sure that teaching is stressful and, it, and it, there is a lot of work, but you can be organised. You know, you can plan your work, you can distribute, it, you can spread it out, you can you know have things where you know that you're going to work on Sunday morning, you're going to set it out, and you've known that for a few days, or you know there's a parents evening coming up, so you've told your wife or your kids that you're not going to be back until late. But when those things come up on you and you, they blindside you, that's when it really gets to you and becomes unmanageable. So yeah, certainly making sure you're organised and you're looking after yourself. Um, whether you're a trainee teacher, whether you're a senior leader, you know it, it, it's it, the, the pressures are, are similar. They're just they're, you know they're just they're just coming in slightly different uh, different guises. Certainly, and I love your your, your two nuggets of of <laughs> of advice there. Thank you so so much for that. And it echoes back to to a previous advice I got from a, another guest called uh, Joe Facer, and she talked about teachers being brain athletes rather than where our physical athletes our brains are active all the time and our brains need that rest so thanks so much for that for that John and, I, and I'll definitely be be sharing the idea that we, we shouldn't let date night become that night <laughs> and, and my final question to you John is, is one that really fascinates me and the different responses I get and it'll be interesting to hear from, from you definitely in the, the roles that you've had throughout your career is, is what do you think most gets in the way of, of great teaching and learning in our classrooms uh, unfortunately, I think I'm probably I'm probably going to be swayed by what's happened in the last few days on this. Unfortunately, uh, but I think it, I have to say politics and everything that comes underneath that. Um, and I suppose the politics of league tables, you know, um, kind of chasing different targets for different different students, etc., etc. And I think that we spend far too much time, unfortunately, trying to work out uh, how best to move up league tables, how to perform well in whatever whatever shape you see, see the word performer schools um, and, you know, working out which exam board is best to do for the, you know, like it's 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 completely ridiculous. And, and I think that we spend far too much time at schools doing that. I, I'm a massive advocate of having one exam board uh, for, for a subject in a, in a in a across the country so that we're not then working out which one is slightly easy, which one's better for the kids, which one's, like, that's just wrong. You know, how, how on earth are we in a position where we do that? Um, you know, we, we spend far too much time thinking about league tables um, and what it means and the pressure on schools, of, you know, and, and unfortunately, lots of our time, you know, is spent on that um, and how the, how well a school is going to perform to get a certain Ofsted rating or to be to be certain positioned in, a, you know, in, in uh, league tables. And, and I get that because I've worked in a town where we had two comprehensive schools. Uh, fighting over the same kids and there was a falling role in the town so the the need and the pressure to be above the other school you know etc et I, I i've lived and breathed that for for a long time however um we all know that um working together is better than working as individuals but actually 
we don't, why would we, you know, there's a perverse incentive to not help a school down the road because of league tables and Ofsted ratings and getting bums on seats. Whereas actually it would be far better if we did work together. But in this competitive environment, um, you know, it's, you know, we can't do it, you know, and it's kind of, it's really disappointing that we're in this situation and we want to help more people and we want to help schools and we want to join forces. But there's still why, you know, that there is that creeping voice either in your head, my head or somebody's head somewhere saying, yeah, but why would we want to do that when we're competing against them for, you know, bums on seats and the right kids and the right seats, etc. And it shouldn't be that. It, it shouldn't be that at all. And uh, that frustrates me. And it's frustrated me for a long time. Um, and I think going back to your to answer your question exactly, that that's what I feel we spend far too much time on rather than quality teaching that uh, that, that really makes a difference to our kids. Certainly, <clears throat> and, and, and as you articulated at the end there, it's that sort of stuff gets in the way and dominates our time whereas all the things we spoke about in the and during the interview are the things that we should be focusing on to improve outcomes f- for all our children and that brings us to the to the end of, of the interview i'd like to thank you very much for for your patience and your time th- this sunday morning we had a few a few hiccups due to the the technology but you've been wonderfully patient and, and i thoroughly enjoyed the the interview and as a result of 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 the book that, that you've written and I, and I really enjoyed that and I really encourage the listeners to to go out and, and, and get the book and, and engage with it because it really opens your eyes to to, to as you read it because I, I found myself nodding around like I am teacher 1.0 but it's not something we should be should be um, angry with or disappointed in because everybody's the same but we should be looking to become a, a much more enriched and profession more informed profession so that we can really really provide the best possible education for the children in front of us because as you said earlier on our children need us to be that type of teacher so thank you very very much john yeah you're welcome it's, it's been it's been great to come on and thank you for having me on uh, I, I really enjoyed chatting and uh yeah it's been uh, it's just nice to, to talk to talk education you know without those political kind of concerns and things going on actually getting down to the nitty-gritty with somebody about what really makes a difference with our kids and, and it's always nice to talk about that Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time, teach with joy.